0: Tonight we're just we're just going to dig into the word. We're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus tonight. Woo! And I, I want to ask you before I launch into this. I want to ask you: Have you ever had a recurring nightmare when you were a child? Never yes. had yes. a recurring nightmare. And recurring means you had it more than one time. Okay. Yes. And I one it. of my recurring nightmares and it was also a daymare as well, okay? It was not a daydream, trust me. It was that I would walk into class, and there was either a test that I had forgotten about, or I was supposed to give an oral book report. You remember those oral book reports, guys? Yeah. And I hadn't read the book, which, incidentally, I rarely did anyway. Um, this guy by the name of Cliff was one of my close friends. Wow. Was it he who <laughs> made the no. flip this high school no. or college? No. <laughs> okay. that was, in all fairness, that was before I came to Christ. Mike, are you recording? Oh, you know what? I am not. I need to, to do that. And all I've got to do is I've got to turn this on. Oh, it's already on. Wait a second. Okay. Oh, there we go. And then I press record. Simple enough. Okay. And... So in this recurring nightmare that I have, I, w- I find out when I walk into class, Mike, you're, you're up to give your uh, to give your oral book report, and I haven't read the book, and I'm, I'm, I've got the book on me, and I've got to quickly read the back cover and read as many of the first few pages as I can and do a book report on it, and I'm terrified, okay? But we all have these recurring nightmares, at least when we were kids. Does anyone have a recurring nightmare now that you're an adult? Recurring nightmares. Oh, oh, more hands. Okay. All right. Um, but f- forgetting what we had to do or not being prepared, I hate that. That's, for me, that's one of the most terrifying things, to be completely unprepared. And I, I can't stand that. The Bible tells us that we are to be watchful and ready for when Jesus comes back. So uh, my question is, how do we actually do that? How are we supposed to be watchful and ready for when Jesus comes back? Now, in, in way of review, turn with me to, to Revelation 16. Very quickly, we looked at the battle of Armageddon. So it was the, it's supposed to be the last battle on earth. And the question that we had to ask right up front was, is this a physical, literal battle, or is it a spiritual battle? Is it a metaphor for something? Because... Just about every teaching out there that you read in a book, that you're online, or that is that it's a physical battle. Maybe some of you believe that. I don't hold that against you. But when we look at it, there's certain questions that I had to ask in order to come to any kind of conclusion. And what what I discovered was, when we looked at this, was that there is an encroaching enemy, and it's actually the kings of the east, and they cross over the... Euphrates River, once it dries up, and then apparently they head to har Now, in Greek, they dropped the the H, and it just became Armageddon, which basically means Mount or Hill of Megiddo. And that is a place that's actually in pretty much central Israel, just below Galilee. And it, so it's actually a place, and that these, these enemies, they are marching across the euphrates once it dries up to harmageddon or armageddon or hill of megiddo and they are going to they're going to for the purpose of a battle in which they're going to war against the saints not israel there's actually nowhere in revelation that says that this battle is against israel there's not even a hint of it it's it's repeatedly against the saints. And in Revelation 19, it's actually, it says it's against the Lamb and against his followers. Which, okay, Jesus hasn't come back yet, but the battle is still against him. And I'm going to suggest to you, as I did last week, that this battle, this battle is against the saints and it has to do with persecution. Whenever you read about war in Revelation, and it's actually mentioned several times, it's always the beast against the saints. So how do you war against the people of God? Are the people of God dressed in literal armor, with shields, with literal swords? Or is it a spiritual warfare, and is it persecution? I, As I read through Revelation, I come to this conclusion, it has to do with persecution. And so Armageddon... Becomes then a type or a metaphor, a spiritual picture of this end time persecution against the saints. Now, you might recall when Paul was uh, confronted on his way to Damascus. Remember, he was going to persecute Christians there. Jesus confronted him and he said, Why do you persecute me? Who are you? The idea is that Paul was persecuting Jesus. By persecuting the the followers of Jesus. So even though Jesus may not be here, it's fair enough to say that the beast is leading this battle with amongst all nations against Christians, and therefore it is also against Jesus, against the Lamb and against his followers. So when we look at this word war, battle, it's always in this context of persecution. And so... I'm going to also suggest that this idea of Megiddo is a type, just like Euphrates River is a type. It's not, a, it's not the literal river, because trust me, no army needs the Euphrates River to dry up in order to cross it, much less march across the earth or anywhere to cross the Euphrates in order to get to Israel. They would airdrop them. They would use huge boats, dropping them off at the Mediterranean. And Megiddo is only a few miles—so well, <coughs> miles inland. Simple march, rather than several hundred marches, you just have several miles, and so I'm going to suggest to you that even the Euphrates River is more of a type. For example, Babylon, the the great prostitute of Babylon, it's not the literal city of Babylon. Babylon is a type of the enemy of God in the Old Testament, and even uh, First Peter's Paul, Peter says that he is writing from Babylon. And it's not literal Babylon, because at that time, Babylon was completely destroyed. And to this day, if you know anything about Babylon, it's a total ruins. It used to be 14 miles by 14 miles. used to have the um, hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a total wasteland today, complete destruction. And so I think it's fair for us to realize it's not a literal Babylon, but it just simply represents the wickedness. In, in the world. The New Jerusalem is not a literal city. It represents the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus and the 144,000, they're standing on Mount Zion. I'm not convinced that it's a literal Mount Zion, but as Mount Zion, even in Hebrews 12, it's it represents the kingdom of God. And so I believe there it does. They're standing in the kingdom of God. Um, even so, Euphrates represents that barrier between God's enemies and and God's people. If you look in the Old Testament, that's how Euphrates is regularly characterized. Per, uh, Persian, Babylon and the Assyrians, they're on the other side of the river. And even David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom and Jer- King Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, their kingdom went all the way up to the Euphrates, never across it. So that's like a barrier between God's people and God's enemies. And this is simply telling us, chapter 9 we hear about it, this chapter we hear about it, that barrier is taken down. God allows this barrier to come down, and the beast is granted power, not authority, over the saints. And so I'm suggesting that in the same time, there's going to be this huge persecution, and Jesus comes right in the midst of it, to the rescue, so to speak, On his white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, which would represent the power of his words. He just speaks the word, and creation is. He speaks the word, and his enemies are destroyed as well. And so what what we have then is it concludes right here in Revelation 16, verse 14. It says this. Referring to the frogs, which my wife is still convinced that frogs are demonic, I'm not sure that these frogs are, are, are well, these frogs are demons. But I'm not sure that the frogs in, in the tent, one of the twelve, one of the ten plagues of Egypt were, were demons, um, or that those demons hang out at our front doorstep like the rest of the frogs. But these are spirits mm-hmm. of uh, demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them. There's this deception that's involved. They gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. The great day of God Almighty. And then here is the next verse that we're going to focus on. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. What an odd verse, right? I mean, We're going to realize it's, it's couched in metaphor, and, and he's not speaking literally here. We don't have to literally have our clothes on or right next to us, and we're not going to go out into the streets naked and shamefully exposed. He's not talking about this literally. So I'm going to dig into this. We're actually going to be looking at Luke 12 to, to really dig into this. But uh, before I go any further, I want to, I want to just pray, and that's God's blessing, as we get into uh, what we're going to talk about, the second coming of the Lord. So, Father, we ask that you would simply speak your words tonight, speak your heart, speak prophetically to our hearts. Give us a charge, Lord God, as we are heading into this battle. We don't know if that's in our generation or not. Obviously, there is persecution in our day. And there's going to be a revival that's going to come. And then it can conclude with this persecution again. And you're going to come. Father, I pray that we would look forward to that day in which you come, that great day of God Almighty. And I just ask you, Father, show us how we can be prepared in every way. Speak to our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. The great day of God Almighty. So I have here, this is the day of the Lord, okay, that's listed here. Second um, Peter, I'm just going to read these verses to you. Of 2 Peter chapter, Second Peter here we go. Second Peter chapter three, starting with verse eleven. It says, "Since everything will be destroyed in this way," he's talking about the day of the Lord. "What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming." Isn't that interesting? that we are to look forward to the day of God, and this Revelation 16 is talking about the day of God, because in the day of God, it's it, we, we can actually speed its coming by living holy, godly lives. Think about that. It's not like we can twist God's arm, but God has a certain time in which he is going to come. Okay? And if Christians cannot live radically, holy, godly lives, there is not going to be enough evidence in a court of law to persecute them. You got that? God is waiting for his bride to shine brightly, and at that point, there's going to be an uprising to persecute, and he will come in, and he says, not on my wife. And we look forward to the day. We can actually speed his coming by living holy, godly lives. So here are the six things. As we read through scriptures, we find these constituting this day of the Lord. Number one, as you can see here, number one is Jesus coming back. Okay? That's what initiates this great day of God Almighty. It's going to happen at this, what's commonly called the Battle of Armageddon. And Jesus is going to come back to inaugurate the day of the Lord. Commonly. Um, theologians use the term parousia, okay? That ain't, that's the Greek word for coming, all right? Number two, we're gathered to him. We learned about that the first time when we were going through this series, um, the end. Number three, it says that there is a destruction of the ungodly. He's going to destroy the ungodly. Number four, he's going to bring judgment. Now, can I just suggest to you that throughout the New Testament, Uh, For example, in Jude, uh, when he comes back, he comes back to do something. He comes back, it says in Jude, to judge the wicked. So the judgment of the wicked doesn't wait a day, doesn't wait a year, doesn't wait a thousand years. It happens right away. He destroys the ungodly, and he judges them. The next thing is that the heavens and the earth are completely destroyed, and then there's a new heavens. And there's a new earth. Those are the things that happen on the day of the Lord. When when you read through scripture and you, you look at what this day of the Lord constitutes. Okay? So, how does Jesus come like a thief? It says here in verse 15, I come like a thief. Does Jesus come to steal? No. no. I mean, that's what a thief does, right? So, why on earth does Jesus liken his coming to a thief? So I'm going to encourage you, it is not to steal anything. Some people kind of use the better for, well, he's stealing his people away. It's just that the Bible never talks about it that way. It talks about him coming like a thief and then explains it. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus comes like a thief and that we're to be, we are challenged to stay away and to keep... Uh, our clothes with us, so odd. So if, to understand that, let, let's turn over to Luke chapter twelve. Luke chapter twelve. Okay, we're going to dig into this. Luke twelve. All right. I'm going to be I'm going to be beginning with uh, verse thirty five. I'm going to read through verse 40. 35 to 40. Here we go. Be dressed. That's how we starts this out. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching. When he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come on wait and will come and wait on them. When Jesus comes back, he's gonna gather us together, and there is going to be, he is going to now reverse roles in which he's gonna do the serving. He's gonna wait on you hand and foot. I'm not exactly sure what that's gonna look like literally, but he's gonna wait on us hand and foot. And we are going to be reclining at a table. Now, this may be a literal feast. It may be something else. If it's something else, I can't picture it. So I'm just going to stick with this wedding feast of the Lamb. And he is then going to be waiting on us. He's going to be serving us. Jesus didn't come to lord it over us. Jesus came to serve. Okay? That's what he did. He came to serve. And so, now he is going to be doing that. It goes on, verse 38, it says, he will be good to those, excuse me, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, now understand, he is switching metaphors right now. Watch what he does, okay? But understand this, if the owner of the house which is now you. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So, why a thief? It's not to steal, but it's this whole idea of coming suddenly, coming unexpectedly. So, no one's going to be able to guess the hour or the day. And I realize that there have been people over the last several decades, and, and even beyond that, honestly, just not this many, but trying to figure out what day and of what year Jesus was going to be coming back. And it's interesting, when you, when you read these people or listen to them on the radio, read their books or their blogs, they will predict a date. The date comes and goes, and they will always recalibrate. You no, know, we were mistaken. It's not this date, it's this date. And they will always forever be guessing, guys. And they will always and forever be missing it. Because no man knows the hour of the day. It's going to come suddenly, and it's going to come unexpectedly. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's only going to come unexpectedly for the world. It's not going to come unexpectedly for you, or that it shouldn't. Let me just read to you from First Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord... What inaugurates the day of the Lord? The coming of Jesus, okay? That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers... So we switch here. But you, brothers, are not in darkness... So that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And so for Christians, Paul is saying this isn't going to come unexpectedly for you. As a matter of fact, I want us to soon get into how can we wait expectantly? What does that look like? What does it not look like? But how do we do that, guys? Every day, how can we live expectantly for the Lord's return? And, and I'm going to suggest to you that you don't want to be like me, waking up in that dream. Well, in the dream I, wake, I I realized in class that, hey, I've got a, this oral book report. Or I've got this test, and I totally forgot about it. It's in my syllabus, and I just totally, I'm totally unprepared. Guys, we want to be prepared. How do we do that? What does that look like? okay so to begin it says right there that we need to be dressed ready for service and keep our lamps burning so if we if we follow this he says like men who are waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet so understand this master of the house he has servants you're one of those servants This master would be like Jesus, and he goes away. Now, in this parable, he goes away to a wedding banquet. That's not the wedding banquet of the Lamb, okay? It's not like the servants miss out on that. Guys, you're not going to miss out on it. If you're a believer in Jesus, you'll be there. You're not going to miss out. So the parable is simply about a master goes away to a wedding banquet. It could be some other sport. It could be an NFL football game, for all that matters. But when he comes back, it says he knocks on the door. What does that tell you? It tells us that the servants locked the door. It tells us that he is coming home late at night. It tells us that maybe the average servant would have already gone to bed and had turned out all the lamp lights. to do that. They're not laying in bed in their PJs. Not laying in the bed reading a book and then falling asleep. How many of you like? How many of you like to read right before you fall asleep? My wife likes to do that. Okay. If I do that, I find the book on my chest, and you're halfway, you know, in the middle of the night. What happened here? And so I, I have to be careful. I usually can't do that, but here they're told to be ready. In other words, when he comes, the door's locked. How's he going to get in? I guess keys were bulked. Back then? And so you don't the, the owner may not have brought a set of keys with him. After all, his servants are there, and he's told them, I'm going to be back. I don't know when, but unlock the door for me. Okay? That means they cannot fall asleep. That means that they have to stay in their clothes and not switch into their PJs. And it talks about even if he comes in the second or third watch. So now we're talking about midnight or later. Wow. So, man, I don't know about you, but after, like, midnight, I start turning into a pumpkin. Um, and, and it's it's tough for me to, to stay up really late. But these guys were told, I need you to be ready no matter how late it is. So forget about seeking the comfortable. The comfortable would be, ah, I'll just stay awake, but I'm going to slip into my pajamas. I'm going to keep a little lamp burning right next, to my bed, but I'm going to, right next to my bed, but I'm going to turn off all the other lamps, and I'm going to read, or I'm going to watch TV, or I'm going to, you know, whatever. And then when he knocks on the door, I'll hopefully I'll hear it, and I'll come. No, they were to be ready. They were to, in Revelation it says, have their clothes ready. Now, that might refer to another metaphor, because many times the coming of Jesus is likened to a bridegroom, Coming to his bride's house. he Sometimes there would be a trumpet. Usually though he would call. Really loudly. But she had to have. Her clothes with her. So that all she had to do. She didn't yell at the window. Give me about. Three hours and I'll be all packed. Ready to go on our honeymoon. Nope. She had to have her clothes. Everything ready. So that when he called. With the party that came with him. She grabbed her suitcase and out the door she went. And they would go to the wedding hall. They would get married. They would have a banquet and so on. So maybe Revelation 16 is talking about having the clothes with them because that metaphor there is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Here, it's the master coming home and he needs the door unlocked. He needs them to be ready. So guys, we need to be ready. And we need to be dressed, ready to serve. We need to have the lamps burning. So this is how they were supposed to watch. We can't fall asleep. We can't slip into our PJs. We need to be ready. Can I just suggest to you that it's when the Master tarries, it's when the Master tarries that the true servants are revealed. When... When Jesus takes a while, we start wondering if he's coming. When, Jesus, when we believe that God has something good in store for us, when it's a while in coming, we begin to second guess. We begin to doubt. And so Jesus promises, I am coming back. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I read several verses about the day of God in that passage. Before that, the setting was the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord. And, they, and scoffers are going to say, what's this about his coming? He's so long in coming, he's not, he's not going to be coming. Church, I'm going to encourage you that Jesus may come back in our lifetime. He may not. But the idea of his coming needs to be what they say, it needs to be imminent. In other words, it needs to be, we need to be thinking it could happen at any point. Okay? Now, the, the other question is, you know, it's, it's also possible we may not draw another breath tomorrow we may die Okay. We, so it, our, don't, don't just expect your life to go on years and years and years that's the idea I may come back and so Jesus doesn't say hey just you know what you may die one day well that happened to the, the, uh, the, the fool that we're going to look at here in just a moment but you know what Jesus is suggesting I'm going to come back so that's what we think about Rather than the possibility of dying, he says, I could come back. And I can go back in your lifetime. I can go back tomorrow. And are we ready? And then he switches metaphors, and he says, now you're the owner. And we need to be ready so that that the thief cannot break in. All he is meaning by that is not that Jesus is going to steal something, but that we're expecting him. And if the owner expected a thief to come, he would be prepared. He would have locked the doors, he would have locked the windows, he would have set the alarm, he would have done something, he would have had his watchdog ready, rather than curled up on the second floor sleeping, he would have been ready. So here's what I'm going to do. I want us to ask this question, what does it mean to be ready? Okay. And in order to ask that question, what does it mean to be dressed ready for service? What does it mean to be watchful? Because I don't think it means to be, by being watchful, I don't think it means to pull out our, our prophecy charts. This is the extent of my prophecy chart right here. That's what I got. Jesus is coming back, and the idea of being watchful means being alert, being ready, be constantly equipped and ready to go when he knocks on the door. So how do we do that? If we were to look at this context, and I'm just going to touch on a few brief things, we're going to re- and going back to the very beginning of this chapter, we're not going to read it, but if we were to go back to the beginning of this chapter, here's what we discovered. All right, look at verse one. It says, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands, so this is not a small crowd. Jesus is talking to a huge crowd, but his disciples are there. He's going to talk to them at some point and then talk (coughs) to the crowd separately. But he says, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. And this is what he says. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So this is how this whole meeting, this whole sermon begins. He's speaking to his disciples, just like on the Sermon on the Mount. If you weren't aware, the Sermon on the Mount is only Jesus talking to his disciples. And then by the end of the the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters later, there's a huge crowd. So apparently, maybe the crowd joins later, but Jesus is speaking to this crowds of thousands, and he's only speaking to his disciples. And it's important because he tells them, don't be like the Pharisees, don't be hypocrites. You know, in the Greek, Hippocrates was a pretender. They were the ones that you would find on stage, and they would have the masks in front of them. They would pretend. I mean, the real person was not the character that was being portrayed. So the real person was pretending and portraying to be a character, and he would wear a mask. That was a Hippocrates, that was a hypocrite. That was someone who, the the person they portrayed was not who they really were. Now we get that, and we allow that on stage and in movies and such, but in real life, Jesus says, that's a hypocrite. That is someone who is acting. That is someone whose words don't line up with their actions. That's someone whose private life does not measure up to their public life. We act one way in public, we act another way in private. Okay. really important, guys, who are we? Because the one who's ready is not this person who acts one way at church, Maybe at home, maybe the guy has a Christian wife and Christian kids, so he still maybe puts on this mask, but at work, another person. We don't want to be like that. So Jesus then challenges us, how can we be different? And the very first thing that he challenges us with is this whole idea. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Fear God. God is the one, not man, God is the one that we seek to please. We don't seek to please, see, this is at the root of what it means to be a hypocrite. You're wanting to please somebody. You go to church, and you want to please the people at church. And so you don't use foul language like you do at work because you want to impress them that you look good. I'm sure that nobody here does that, right? The truth, though, is that that is what the hypocrite does. So he's one way at work, fearing God, at least verbally and the like, but at home or maybe at work, there's no fear of God. There's no expectancy, Coming back, you know what? When my my kids always had to have their room clean. Every day they had to clean their room. And sometimes they would clean the room by taking everything. And there would be toys everywhere because they played so hard the day before. They would take the toys and stuck them, stick them behind the door, they would stick them under the bed, they would stick them in the closet.
1: Right.
0: And then when I would come in, wow you know, along the side of the room, it, it's like a bomb drop and blew everything to the side of the room, okay? And somehow, some of those things that got blown to the side of the room ended up in the closet, but the door closed, couldn't figure that one out. But I, I would walk in and invariably, I would look behind the door and, hmm, interesting, look under the bed, wow, you got a lot of stuff under that bed, open the closet, if I could, because the closet opens inward and they usually they didn't like is if I would come in unexpectedly. (laughs) And here's what I would find. They're playing in the middle of the room. They're trying to put Barbie away, but Barbie decided to walk across the room and meet Ken and say, Ken, let's hop in our pink car. And before you know it, Ken and Barbie are in the pink car, and off they go. They're zoom zooming around town. And Dad walks in, and my chair is playing. They are not (coughs) Room. <coughs> okay. My girls. That is just what happens. Guys, we don't want to be playing with our barbies when Jesus comes. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be ready. That means we're cleaning the room. That means that we may even have to get our sister or brother to help us clean that room. But we're cleaning the room. We're getting the job done, okay? That's what it means jesus comes back we don't want to be we we don't want it to happen unexpectedly see if it happens unexpectedly that means we're unprepared the very first thing we need to do to be prepared is to fear god he is the one and only he that we need to please okay i mean i want to please my wife but ultimately god does ask me to please my wife but ultimately it's My boss says, hey, if you're going to get a raise, you've got to do this. And this is a compromise. See, I am portraying myself to be one way at church, and now I'm going to compromise. I have to tell my boss, I can't. Because I I, I can't lie. I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't tell the prospective buyer a lie about what I'm selling him. If something's wrong with it, and he asks me, I'm going to be telling the truth. guess what? I might get fired. But I would rather be fired from my job than to display a heart that's unprepared. And I'm not saying if I lie, I'm going to hell. I'm not suggesting that. But when we fear God, church, our actions follow that. Faith is first, but true genuine faith works. It it demonstrates a, a lifestyle of serving Jesus. Okay? And not just at church, but at home, at work doesn't wear the mask this is who i am what you see in my home what you see me at work that's who i always am okay or what you see at church that's who i am the rest of my life the rest of my week. okay and so that's the very first thing that's the first button that we got to get right that's your relationship with Jesus. That's fearing God. He talks about acknowledging Him. Then he gets. Then the crowd kind of steps in at this point, and so, someone approaches Jesus. Hey, my brother, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. And Jesus says this, and I'm only going to point this verse out because I'm not going through everything. He says this. Look there in verse 19. He said, "Excuse me, 15." He says, "Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed." A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So if we're fearing God, and we're trusting in him, and in this way we are being prepared for Jesus' coming, when he comes back, what are the priorities in my life? What are we really, what am I really pursuing in life? Now, I am all about hard work, but I am not all about getting rich. And that's what this parable is about. Jesus perceived that in this brother's heart was a heart of greed. It seems just what he's asking, but instead of going to his brother and dealing with it or finding, he has to go to Jesus in a public meeting. Tell my brother, see, have you, have you, anyway, it's it's in, it's incredible how. Jesus is able to perceive this greed in his heart. His life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. And at the very end, Jesus challenges them, hey, be rich in God. So what would would that mean then? Okay, I have faith, and my life isn't about my money. I am going to be rich in God. What does it mean then to be rich in God? And I'm going to suggest, being rich in God does not mean going out into the world and getting as much as I can. See, that's what this guy did. He built barns, kind of as a trophy. You know, look how look how much I've got. You know, look at my big house. Look at my all, my expensive vehicle. Look at and he, we can accumulate all of these trophies. What is that all about? It's all going to burn up, guys. Right. It's all gonna burn up. Right. That's that was point number five here. Heavens and the earth are destroyed. Your house, your car, everything that you own, all of your money, the bank where your money's at, it's all gonna burn. It's not gonna, you're not gonna be able to take one penny with you. It's all gonna burn. Instead, he says, instead of trying to accumulate so much, how about if your focus be in seeing how then he talks about not having, you know, uh, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. He talks about having purses, uh, providing purses for yourselves that won't wear out. And he says in verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so important that we... Constantly are thinking, and it's not just about giving money to the poor, church. It's about providing for people. It's about serving. It is all about my life being poured out for others. And in that way, you are storing up treasure in heaven. Not on earth. Now, I'm not opposed, and Scripture's not opposed to saving. It's not. But it's a whole idea of accumulating, accumulating. And this is our focus, accumulating. Here's the way you want to think about it. And Paul said it. I was going to read the verse, but I'm short on time. Paul wrote it this way. I worked hard to provide for myself and my team so that we might be able to help the weak. For Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that is the sum total of what our life is. What did you do with all of this stuff that God gives you? Five Did you multiply it? We do that by giving away, by serving, by helping. Where is our heart figure? Where our treasure is? What's valuable in your life? Whatever's valuable in your life, that is going to be your passion. That is going to be what you're going to give yourself to. Stories told of a missionary, and he was staying with a family, and she asked, Would you be able to. You know, at the dinner table after, a minute, would you be able to read the Bible for us? We would love to be for you to be able to read the Bible, and if you'd like, share a few words. So the, the missionary said, "Sure." And so the mom turns to the son and says, "Hey, son, can you go into the parlor? Parlor? There was there were parlors back then." And she says, "Can you go into the parlor and can you get that really big book that your mom and dad always read from?" And so he goes into the parlor and brings back the Sears and Robo catalog. <laughs> the idea, though, is that. Where we spend our time, what, what we value, then that becomes our passion. It becomes what we think about a lot. So, guys, the, the question that Jesus, when he, when, when he is saying, be prepared, be ready, he really gets at the heart, what are we valuing in this life? Because what we value, that's what we're going to pursue. I'm just going to tell you, single single girls, If you're pursuing a guy, and that is your goal, you know what? I'm going to suggest to you that maybe your goal, maybe, I'm not saying that you should not get married. I am suggesting, though, that if that becomes your pursuit, that guy is probably going to take the place that God deserves. And I'm going to suggest to you, trust God. Because that's, we read about that, I didn't get into it, but he talks about not worrying to take care of you, it's going to take care of all of our needs. So when we're giving away, one of the hindrances is, is well, how much do I get to keep? Do I have to give everything away. What is God going to provide? And you know, my wife, in fact, was just, she she was she loves Christmas. And the reason why she loves Christmas, um, though, I think secretly she hopes for a pink Barbie that someone's going to give her. The the main thing she loves about Christmas is she loves giving gifts. And we've got a budget, and. She just, she loves to give as many gifts as she can. And and so we, we had our discussion about our, our Christmas finances, but she was just always pushing, let's give more, let's give more, let's give more. as you know, so as much as, as we can. If anything, I'm the one that's saying, looking at the finances, because I'm thinking, well, we've got, we've got this and this that we need, we need, we need. And she's thinking, you know, what? in essence, God's going to take care of that. We have enough. It's just give. Yeah. And that just challenges me every Christmas. So guys, here's what I want to just conclude with. I want us to think about 2024. Not how, in my goals, how much can I make? What's my salary going to be? And we may have to crunch those numbers, I get that. But if that's what we're focusing on, I think we're missing it. Instead of focusing on those goals about what we could get, how about if we focus on all that we give away. Because that's what Paul says. I work hard so that I can give away. So that I can help the weak. Let that be our goal. See, according to Jesus, that's what it means to be ready. Instead of focused in, we're focused outward. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be ready. Even if he takes a long time. Because we are busy not enjoying all the stuff of this world. I mean, I enjoy life. Don't get me wrong but we're enjoying serving and giving. So I'm just going to conclude with this question. When was the last time you gave? I want you to immediately think of an example. When was the last time you gave? And all I'm going to suggest is, if it takes a long time for you to think about the answer to that question, maybe you need to take stock. Because if this is your mission in life, able to give an answer right away to that question. And the next day, it's going to be different. And the next day, it's going to be different. But we would always have an answer. Father, I just pray that you would give us wisdom. Father, we want to be expectant about Jesus coming. We want to be ready. And I just ask you, Father, show every single one of us in 2024 what that's going to look like. And how, as we gather, we're going to be looking for creative ways to give. May that be what our life is all about. Where our priorities are in giving rather than receiving. We thank you, Father. Give us